I've been pondering for several months uh, what my final messages should be as your pastor, and I kind of arrived at a good place that I feel really good about. Um, we're going to spend a couple of weeks, since we're in transition, and since you already, you know, we've already you know, overwhelmingly affirmed Pastor Will to, to step in uh, in my place, I just thought it'd be good to spend some time just sort of talking about the transition. And uh, so these next two weeks, what I'd like to do is this morning, I'm going to talk about uh, what every good church longs for in its pastor. And I emphasize the word good church because uh, some churches don't long for these things that we're going to talk about from Scripture. But I know these are the things that Pastor Will longs for in his own life and what you all long for in a pastor and what you can be praying for in his, in his life uh, as he steps into this role in, in just a couple of weeks. I don't think I'm going to be telling Will or you all anything you don't already know. Uh, I think you're all going to be sitting there now and say, yep, 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 and so is he. But hopefully it'll just be affirming those things. And as I said, reminding you, especially of some of those critical areas where you can be in prayer for your new pastor in the coming weeks and months. Then next week, we're going to flip the other side of the coin. What every pastor longs for in the church. And that'll be sort of a charge to you all as to how you can really support and encourage and affirm and love and uh, be, of, be of great encouragement to him. And then the last message on March 10th, just sort of, uh, I don't know, just sort of wrapping things up, if you will. <clears throat> so today, what every good church, and West Hills is a good church, what every good church longs for in its pastor. I'm going to be using some excerpts from Paul's second letter to young Timothy, who was giving leadership to the church in Ephesus. Um, Timothy traveled with Paul throughout most of his second and third missionary journeys, probably part of his fourth missionary journey. Uh, Timothy was Paul's protege, if you will. Paul pretty much mentored Timothy from being a young convert, a young man in the faith, to the point of actually where Timothy was in charge of the church at Ephesus, giving leadership to that church. Now, I understand that Pastor Will, I've had the opportunity to listen to the first message of the two that I was not here for, and he basically covered a lot of the same stuff the last two weeks. And I thought, well, is this going to be redundant? And I thought, no, it really isn't, because you got the very valuable perspective of the, the young guy, and now you have the hopefully valuable perspective of the old guy. You know, he's, he's boarding the cruise ship, and I'm stepping off the cruise ship, but, or the battleship, as the case may be, you never know. But. But uh, I think this will be good. So, again, excerpts from 2 Timothy that I've, that I've culled. And so I'd like for you to stand as I read through these. <clears throat> Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord of the church, for giving us good words that guide us in knowing how we should lead and shepherd and pastor and also how we should be the church and encourage those whom you call to give us direction and guidance and leadership. And so we pray, Lord, for, for these words that we will look at today. We thank you for Paul's instructions to young Timothy. And we pray that the Spirit of God would use these words to encourage our hearts I thank you for West Hills. Continue to pray your richest blessing upon us in the weeks ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So you got the outline in front of you. I'm going to just try to walk through that and give you some thoughts that come out of these words from Paul to Timothy. First of all, a good church wants a pastor who lives out his faith unashamedly. A man who lives out his faith with boldness, without any shame. Uh, Timothy seems to have struggled perhaps with fear. Uh, maybe the thought of, of, of being sort of under the shadow of the Apostle Paul might have been somewhat intimidating for him. And Paul spent considerable amount of time just encouraging. That's why he wrote, him, wrote to him two letters to encourage him in his, in his pastoral leadership. Um, and so he says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed about the testimony of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. <clears throat> Paul wants Timothy to fulfill his pastoral responsibilities with boldness, with confidence, to not pull back in any fashion. And basically he says here, because of the nature of our faith. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And then he reminds him what 
our faith is all about, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, just remember the faith. Remember the the amazing nature of our faith. And that should cause you to never be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You go to the other scriptures and you see this same concept, idea, teaching. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus said, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father? And so we are not to be ashamed of Christ. Also, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Jesus said. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation. And so you want a pastor who is not ashamed of the gospel in any, in any degree, in any capacity. Paul also tells Timothy to not be ashamed to suffer. If suffering comes your way, don't be ashamed of that. Don't feel as if you have to sort of cower. No, take it as a way to glorify God. And don't be ashamed of those who suffer for one's faith. 1 Peter 4, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Later in this chapter, Paul says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so Paul basically says, Timothy, no need for you to be ashamed in any capacity. And let me tell you, I'm not ashamed of that which I have been called to as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The opposite of being ashamed is to be bold, to be confident, not in yourself, but in the Lord. Secondly, the church, a good church, wants its pastor to be strengthened by God's grace every day. Strengthened by God's grace. Chapter 2, verse 1, you then, my child. And Paul often referred to himself, several times he referred to himself as Timothy's father and to Timothy as his son because of the relationship that they had. You then, my child, be strengthened, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so there is the need, there's going to be the need for Pastor Will to be strengthened. And you ask, well, where will that strength come from? Does that strength come from your own temperament, your own personality, your own sense of, you know, does it come from your education? Does it come from, from just being really skilled in certain areas? No, Paul, Paul tells him, no, your strength will come from God's grace, the grace of God at work in your life. <clears throat> If you do ministry in your own strength, and I can speak from experience in this because there have been those episodes and seasons where I believe I was doing ministry out of my own strength, doing ministry somewhat in the flesh, if you will. And when you do that, you will become prideful. You will limit what God can do. It'll be simply what you are doing as the pastor, and you will rob God of his glory 
because you will be tempted to take the glory for yourself when you're doing it in your own strength. A pastor must breathe the grace of God into his lungs every day. It is a growing awareness of the wonder of God's grace that will enrich the pastor's heart and deepen his love for Jesus and that will enable him to fulfill his calling and to stand in this pulpit week in and week out with gracious words for the people of God, grace-filled words. Jesus was full of grace and what? Truth. Grace and truth. That's what you want for your pastor. Let me just remind you that the Christian life, this is for everybody, for all of us, it's all about grace. From beginning to end, it's all about grace. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about Pastor Will. It's, it's not about West, it's, it's about God's grace. I'll just give you a list of, of the many areas. It is by God's grace that you've been called. Him who called you in the grace of Christ. It is by God's grace that you've been chosen. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. It is by God's grace that you have been saved, Ephesians 2. By God's grace, you are justified, Romans 3. It is by God's grace that you are made righteous, Romans 5. By God's grace, you've been redeemed and forgiven. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It is by God's grace that Pastor Will has certain gifts and you have your gifts. The gifts of God are the grace of God. They come into our lives by his grace. It is by God's grace that you want your pastor to find his identity. I pray that he will not find his identity in being a pastor. I pray that he will not find his identity in, in the things that he is called to do, but he will find his identity in the grace of God. The Apostle Paul said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. It is by God's grace that all of you will fulfill your ministries. 1 Corinthians 15, It was not I. This is the great Apostle Paul speaking. It was not I, but the, but, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God that is at work in me. It is by God's grace that you all do good works here at West Hill, 2 Corinthians 9. It is by God's grace that you endure life's thorns. Remember Paul? He had that thorn in the flesh, and he prayed that God would take it away from him. And what did the Lord say? No, my grace will be sufficient for you. When you're a pastor, you experience thorns. They come in a variety of shapes and sizes. It will be by the grace of God. The Lord's grace will be sufficient for your new pastor. It is by God's grace that he will preach. Did you know that? Ephesians 3, to me this grace was given to preach. It is by God's grace that you all receive divine help, find grace to help in time of need, and ultimately at the end of our lives, it is by God's grace that we are given eternal comfort and hope and an inheritance. You see, the Christian life is all about the grace of God from beginning to end, and so you all at West Hills, you want West Hills to be all about the grace of God, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God shown to a church and shown to its pastor and to its elders and to its staff. <clears throat> Therefore, pray this for Pastor Will. 
Pray that he would drink deeply of the grace of God, that he would swim in the river of God's grace, that he would search the treasures of God's grace, and that he would daily be overwhelmed and strengthened and comforted by the grace of God at work in his own life. Do you know how the Bible ends? You know what the very, very last verse in the Bible is? Revelation twenty two twenty one. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. That's the way the Bible ends. Thirdly, the third thing that Paul tells Timothy, you want to be a pastor who endures the demands of ministry with humility. Endure the demands of ministry with humility, humbly. And there are demands in ministry. There are burdens that a pastor carries. Every calling in life, every, every one of you out there who is a follower of Jesus, you, you, you have a calling in life. And, and your calling is unique. And you have unique, unique responsibilities, unique demands. And we probably need to do a better job appreciating the burdens and demands that each of us carries in the body of Christ. Then we would have greater empathy for each other. But let me just speak from the personal experience of a pastor of 40 years. Pastoral ministry in a local church has its own unique set of demands. They're always there. They're always there. They come in, sometimes they come in waves. And while there is tremendous joy that comes from being a pastor. There's also a considerable burden <clears throat> because you're continually, virtually dealing every day <clears throat> with <clears throat> every aspect of people's lives from birth to death and everything in between. You're addressing people's personal struggles, people who are dealing with temptations and addictions. You're dealing with people's questions about faith, about marriage, about life, about pretty much everything. Marital struggles, you're dealing with marriages and divorces, parenting problems, you're helping young couples get ready for marriage, you're helping people deal with the end of a marriage, health crises, cancers and Alzheimer's and dementia and everything else. You're helping new people get connected to their new church and you are regrettably saying goodbye to people who are walking away from the church. You're preparing sermons and preaching and teaching and discipling and working through your own personal discouragements at times, feelings of defeat and failure. You're doing weddings and funerals and baptisms. You're working with people at all different levels of spiritual maturity from infants to the extremely long-term walking with Jesus. And then the pastor is also dealing with just his own personal life, his own heart, his own fears, his own insecurities, his own hopes and dreams and aspirations. And then you're also trying to maintain a healthy, loving home life and marriage and wanting to be a good dad to Ellery and, and uh, everything else. And then... On top of all of that, the pastor is dealing with spiritual warfare, perhaps to a degree that others may not experience quite as much. Spiritual warfare is true for all believers, but pastors are called. Pastors are called into a spiritual battle along with his co-leaders in the elders. And so there is the enemy of the soul who is continually trying to bring pastors down any way that he can. And as we all know, 
many pastors have fallen in our country over the last couple of decades for a variety of reasons, and it doesn't seem to let up. I do not share any of that with you to seek sympathy for your pastors. I just simply share it with you for awareness that you understand the calling. And so Paul's words to Timothy are pretty instructive, I feel. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier. He's telling Timothy that he must liken his ministry to that of being an enlisted soldier. And and those of you who have served in the military, military, uh, you know the suffering of a soldier. There's discipline and training and sacrifice and hardships and perseverance and endurance and laying down their lives in some cases. Paul tells Timothy that a good soldier aims to please the one who enlisted him. You aim to please the one who enlisted you. West Hills did not enlist Pastor Will. The Lord has enlisted Pastor Will to serve this church as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And you all are fellow soldiers. The aim must always be to please God and not man. I will tell you that there will always be the temptation in ministry to be a people pleaser, to try to figure out what will make the elders happy, to try to figure out what will make the long-standing members of this church happy and also the people who are brand new happy. And you will find yourself, if you are not careful, caught in this dilemma of wanting to please people. And as long as your pastor is seeking daily the grace of God that is needed every day, he will not be a people pleaser. He will seek to please the Lord, and he will be encouraged and supported in that with his fellow elders. Do you see why a pastor needs to be strengthened by God's grace? Fourthly, Paul tells Timothy... A good church wants a pastor who handles the word of truth very carefully. Handles the word of truth very carefully. Do your best. Do your best. Sometimes you're going to stumble in this. Sometimes you won't be able to do it quite so well. But do your best. You're a man, but do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. To present yourself to God. It's it's the idea of, of presenting yourself for inspection as a soldier. Your commanding officer walks by and you are under inspection. Do your best to present yourself to God as the one who enlisted you. God enlisted you. Present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. There's that ashamed idea again. No need to be ashamed because you're doing your best. Rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling. It's the word orthos. And it means straight. Orthopedic, orthopedic, uh, orthodoxy, straight teaching, straight truth, rightly handling the word of truth. And so you, you want a pastor who gets it straight and then who gives it straight. And so you pray for him during the week as he's preparing his sermons. The Spirit of God help Pastor Will to get it straight. And then on Sunday mornings, Spirit of God helped Pastor Will to give it to us straight. Orthodox teaching. 
Why is this so important? Because it is the word of God. Rightly handling the word of truth because it is God's truth. It is not man's truth. It is not, it is not the pastor's truth. It is God's truth. There have always been those who have mishandled the word of truth. There were those who were mishandling the word of truth in Ephesus. Actually, Paul calls them out by name. Hymenaeus and Philetus get their names into the word of God, not for good reasons, but because they had swerved from the truth. They weren't straight, orthodox. They swerved from the truth. And that's how they got their names in the Bible, swerving from the truth of God. Tim Challies, uh, he's an author, and he also has a blog, and he did a blog, I think a couple years ago now, called Seven False Teachers in the Church Today. Um, our life group actually watched a, uh, a movie over two weeks called The American Gospel dealing with uh, many, many, many false gospels that are being preached today in our country and are being, being exported around the world. Um, I, would re- I would recommend it to any and all of you. I-, I think some of the other life groups are watching it as well. But uh, Tim Challies uh, identifies what he sees as the seven main areas that, that we're finding false teaching today. There's the heretic. The heretic teaches what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. For example, the nature of Christ, fully God and fully man. There are pastors who don't teach that. Uh, and so, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, uh, they don't teach the biblical teaching about the nature of Christ. Uh, there's the charlatan who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. You're familiar with some of these. I will call them out by name. Kenneth Copeland is a charlatan. He's worth $740 million off of the gospel. Um, Benny Hinn, $40 million. Uh, Creflo Dollar, $27 million. Charlatans use Christianity as a means to enrich their own lives. There's the prophet Claims to be gifted by God to speak fresh revelation outside of Scripture. A new word, an authoritative word, a new revelation. Joseph Smith was, of course, one from history who fell into that category. The abuser uses his position of leadership and authority to take advantage of other people. And so today we've had priests and we've had pastors who have used their position of authority and power to exploit other people. There's the divider who uses doctrine, false doctrine, to, dis- to divide a church, to destroy a church. There's the speculator. That's the person who is obsessed with novelty, new ideas. I have a brand new idea here. Uh, several years ago, Rob Bell would have fallen into that category, near as I can tell. And then the last one is, he calls it the tickler. Uh, it's, it's from 2 Timothy 4, where Paul says there will be those who have itching ears, and they're looking for people who will... You know, do that for him. <clears throat> the false teacher who cares nothing for what God wants and everything for what men want. And so you're, th- this is the pastor who's trying to please people by giving them a message that they'll, they'll all sit there and say, oh, that, that, I, that's, that just affirms me in my humanity. That affirms me in, in, in my pride. That affirms me in my, my, my obsession with self, whatever it happens to be. 
teachers to suit their own passions. Uh, when I was early in ministry, I think Robert Schuller was a tickler, and I believe today the, the, the pinnacle person of all of them is Joel Osteen, who, who just does a... Jenny and I watched one of Joel Osteen's messages this week just because we had watched the American Gospel. And um, he used Scripture. He used New Testament verses. He used an Old Testament narrative. And he massaged it and manipulated it to say that God is calling all of us to a life of ease. God wants to anoint you with ease. And then at the end, he tacked on, you need to pray to receive Christ. And I thought, my goodness, how deceptive can you possibly get? How deceptive can you possibly be? 90% of your message, 99% of your message is all about self and then you tack on a little piece of the gospel at the very end. So those are some of the, you want a pastor, all of that is say, you want a pastor in this pulpit who rightly, carefully, humbly, prayerfully handles the word that he holds in his hands. And so you pray for that, for Pastor Will. And number five, a good church wants a pastor who is pursuing personal godliness aggressively. He's pursuing his personal godliness very aggressively. Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, do all these things along with, along with your church. Uh, flee, pursue, run away, chase after. Certain things that you want your pastor to run away from and certain things that you want your pastor to chase after. Uh, flee is the Greek word fuego from which the word fugitive, Dr. Richard Kimball, uh, we get the word fugitive. He was continually running away from so that he wouldn't get caught. Fuego means to flee, to run away from. He says, flee youthful passions. What are youthful passions? Well, the context here, I think the, the first thing we'd probably think of is, is sexual passions. Might be in there. It definitely needs to be included. But the context doesn't seem to give itself to that. The context seems to be something else. I, I pulled off... Brian Chapel and Kent Hughes' commentary on this passage. And uh, I just want to read a, a piece of it for you. These are the headstrong passions of youth, the desires characteristic of youth. Both the context and ministerial experience indicate what these youthful desires are. And then he lists several of them. This is Brian Chapel from Covenant Seminary. Now he's a pastor in Illinois. Kent Hughes, pastor of Wheaton Church for many, many years. Here's, here's what they believe they are. Impatience is a chronic sin of youth. It is incomprehensible to the young pastor that the situation cannot be changed right now. Today's impatience is fed by the media's quick fix. The problem is real church doesn't work that way. What those in ministry need to understand is that a church with any history at all is like a huge ship. 
let me go backwards. Let me, let, me, let me go back 30 years. When I came here, this church was in a really sad place. It had been split down the middle. Um, 50% of the people had left with their pastor, and 50% were left. It was, it was, it was, I'm convinced that the best people stayed. But um, I came here from Minnesota thinking, okay, I think I have a pretty good picture of the situation. I think we can turn this thing around pretty fast. 29 years later, it's still a work in progress. Ministry is a work in progress. Local churches have their ups and their downs. They're, they're, you know, it's, it, it's because we're people in, pro, in the process of being sanctified. We're a local church that's sort of moving through life by the grace of God. And so impatience. I was impatient as a young pastor. A church with any history at all is like a huge ship at sea. Aha, the Norwegian breakaway. A freighter or an ocean liner or a battleship. It takes seven miles to turn a great ship around. It takes seven miles to turn a great ship around. Young pastors who ignore this imperil themselves and their churches. Second youthful passion, harshness. A telltale sign of youthful desires. It may rarely show up in the pulpit or at board meetings, but it shows itself in conversation with confidants. It surfaces in figures of speech and nicknames for detractors. The, the cast of an eye, the set of the jaw, the tone of the voice. And so you don't want your pastor to be harsh when he is thinking and talking about the church away from this desk. Likewise, contentiousness, the love of debate and winning is a sin of our youth. Here is where dogmatism flourishes, fed by an inability to comprehend or tolerate other people's points of view. The headstrong young pastor has forgotten that God has given him one mouth and two ears because he ought to listen twice as much as he speaks. And that's just, that's, those are just some of the youthful passions that we have to wrestle with in ministry. It is, a, it is not a sprint. It is not a sprint. It is a marathon for as long as God has you in a church. Pursue personal godliness aggressively. The good church prays for the personal life of its pastor and its elders. So flee youthful passions. And then he says, pursue righteousness. That means right conduct. Pursue faith. That means belief and trust in God. Pursue love, loving God's people. Pursue peace, harmony, tranquility in the local church. Along with your brothers and sisters who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Uh, number six. Paul tells Timothy that he is to tend the flock lovingly. Tend the flock lovingly. Chapter 2. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Kind to everyone. That can be hard. That can be hard, can it? Can it? Can't it be hard? Kind to everyone? Seriously? Everyone? <laughs> Bingo. 
Yeah, I, I think back to the little ditty, to live above with saints we love, that will be the glory, but to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> See, these are the kinds of commands given to pastors that remind us that it has to be Christ in me. It has to be Christ among us and in us. These are not things that we're called to do in our, in our own strength. You can't. Not quarrelsome. Let me read another piece here from Brian Chapel. Not quarrelsome. God's instrument must not quarrel. He, he writes, I have been in such conversations and I knew I was... He's talking about stupid arguments. I have been in such conversations and I knew I was right. But I was sick of every word after I said it. Yet I kept on arguing anyway. My argumentative chic was totally uncool. The Lord's servant must not do this. Kind-hearted. Kind to everyone. Patiently enduring evil. That doesn't mean the evil of the world. That means being patient when I'm wronged. You patiently endure when you're wronged by other people. That might be the hardest qualification of them all. I don't know. I can speak again from my own personal experience. The old self continually wants to rise up and get defensive. The old self wants to prove that you're right and the other person's wrong. The old self has tremendous difficulty saying, I was wrong. Can you relate with that? I took the wrong approach. My assumptions were wrong. My words were wrong. My tone of voice was wrong. I was wrong. We hate the word wrong when it has to be applied to ourselves. We'll use it freely when it's applied to other people. They were wrong. I think that's what Paul's telling Timothy. There are going to be times when you will have to patiently endure. Times in ministry when a pastor must graciously accept unjust criticism without seeking to lash out or get even. And he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There is correction needed. You correct your opponents, but you do it with gentleness, Paul says. No clever put-downs where you feel like, ha, I got him. No, you do it with gentleness. And you do it for the sake of not winning an argument. You do it for the sake of guiding them into the way of truth. A pastor is called to guide people into the way of truth. Number seven, a good church wants a pastor who understands the times very soberly. In chapter three, he describes the times. Understand this. In the last days, there will become times of difficulty. And so what are the last days? The last days are the times in which we now live, the times from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming. We are in the last days, and you and I are 2,000 years into the last days. How many more years there are in the last days? We don't know, but we're in them. And Paul says there will come times of difficulty in these days. And then he describes them. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and again, before I read through this list, I want to remind you, these are the things that a pastor knows are in the hearts of the people. 
things in society that need to be addressed, the issues that his flock is dealing with personally, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And a pastor needs to be soberly mindful of the times in which we live in any generation, not to the point of being overwhelmed by those things, but being aware Understanding the condition of humanity apart from God. Understanding the trajectory of the world. Understanding the things that you all deal with in your places of work and whatever, whatever sphere of life you find yourself in. You are dealing with this kind of stuff all the time. The flock, trying to live holy, godly lives, yet this is the reality. And we live in a time of abounding unbelief in our world, abounding skepticism and corruption and division. We live in a culture that is tainted with base corruption. We live in a culture that's ensnared by the devil's deceptions. We live in a culture and society that is living in a thick fog of confusion. Confusion about sexuality and gender and marriage and truth. My truth versus your truth. These are the times in which we live. And the man of God is called to be mindful of these times. In the Old Testament, the men of Issachar are described as men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Men who understood the times in order to know what Israel ought to do. So you want a pastor and elders who understand the times so they know what the church ought to do. Pray for that. And then lastly... It might seem redundant, and to a certain extent it is, but there's a reason for it. Number eight, a good church wants a pastor who preaches the word faithfully. He's handling the word carefully, and then every time he preaches, he preaches the word faithfully. I believe that this is a pastor's number one responsibility in terms of his calling. I believe you can build that case all the way through Scripture. Our faith is a faith of the word Truth, truth in a world filled with deception and lies. And so while he is loving the people and working with the elders to guide the church and, and protect the church and nurture the church, I believe his number one calling is to preach the word. The preaching, the teaching, the expositing, the explaining of God's word, making God's word clear for the benefit and the salvation and the sanctification of the people of God. And that's why Paul comes back to it again and again and again, even in this short letter. Guard the good deposit. Handle it carefully. Watch out for those who swerve from the truth. Entrust it to faithful men. Be acquainted with the sacred writings. And now he says very emphatically, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. People have asked me, what I will miss the most stepping away from pastoral ministry. And obviously, it's emotionally, the first thing is just people. You know, I was giving out hugs this morning and receiving hugs, and I'm going to miss those hugs. 
I'm going to miss all that affection. But in terms of the responsibilities, my answer has always been the same, the preaching of the word. Because I know it has the power to change lives. Because I know it's not man's word, it's God's word. The word of God, the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word. It's the power of God for salvation. It is God's means for your sanctification. It is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path for illumination and revelation. It increases your adoration of God in worship. It deepens your devotion to God in service and witness. It's been an honor, one of the greatest blessings of my life, to be entrusted by God with the high calling of handling the Word of God. And I pray that for Pastor Will. My wife was recently in a conversation with, she had Lucy, she takes care of Lucy, our granddaughter, one of our granddaughters. She had her, I think, probably at Longview Farm Park on a nice day. And she struck up a conversation with another woman there and happened to mention my retirement. I think this was like maybe last fall when it was still a few months away. And uh, she mentioned I'd been here for 30 years. And the woman said, he was a pastor in one church for 30 years doesn't he run out of things to say? <laughs> and Jenny said, what, are you crazy? <laughs> no, she didn't really say that. She was much more gracious. Than but she wanted to. She wanted to. Because this is a gold mine. John MacArthur says this. I have found that what, and this would be my prayer for Pastor Will as he, as he does this, I have found that what energizes me in preaching is the bottomless treasure of Scripture. It doesn't matter how many times I go back to it. It doesn't matter how many times I re-examine a passage. It is an inexhaustible diamond mine. I just keep finding diamonds all over the place. And they have multiple facets. So there you have some of the Apostle Paul's words of exhortation, charge, encouragement to young Timothy, and those would be some of my words to you, Will. And on the other side, those would be my words to all of you as to how you pray for your pastors, how you pray for your elders, how you pray for your staff, that these qualities would become richer and richer and deeper and stronger in the years to come here at West Hills. Amen? Pray with me. And so once again, our Lord and our God, we marvel at our faith. We marvel at the truths that you've given us in your word. We marvel at the calling which has been given to us. You've called us out of the world, out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of, of your son. 
We marvel that Christ is our Savior and our Redeemer, our righteousness and our peace. He is our all in all. And so these are the characteristics that we pray for our new pastor. Pray that he would walk with you. Delight in you. Be amazed by you. That he would glory in Christ. And that we as a church would lift him up every day, throughout the hours of the day, for all of these things and more, all for the glory of God. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to give his life, and he is our example that we might give our lives living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross. We thank you for shedding your blood for the forgiveness of our sins, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So now we take the bread and we take the cup. We do so humbly, gratefully, joyfully because of you. We pray in Christ's name. God's people agreed by saying,